This season of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank and their Smart Start Bank account for 11 to 15 year olds. When I was growing up, my parents would always tell us that money didn't grow on trees and if you look after the pennies, the pounds will look after themselves. But to be honest, I never really understood what these old sayings meant or what they were trying to teach me. And I think like with lots of life skills, these things are just so much easier to learn from a young age. And this is definitely something I think about now with my own children. And I can see it in my niece because since she got her Lloyds Bank Smart Start account, she has become somewhat of a saving superstar. She's already learning how to manage her money and learning these habits, which are going to make her adult life so much easier. She's also so excited about using it too, which is brilliant. They get their own card, they get a savings account and a spending account. It's just such a good idea and something that you can do as a parent that's going to help them flourish in the future. It's so clever. It's so good for their confidence. And it's just something that I wish genuinely had been around when I was that age. I think as parents, we all know we have a lot of plates in the air (laughs) and even with the best intentions, we just don't have the time to teach our children everything that we'd like to. And sometimes that means important conversations get rushed or brushed over. So I really am excited to be working with Lloyds on this campaign because it's all focused on building financial confidence in children. To be eligible, parents and guardians need to have an existing Club Lloyd's current account and be registered for internet banking. To find out more, head to lloydsbank.com forward slash smart start. Thank you very much to Lloyd's Bank. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, how are you all? I hope you're all very well. Has spring finally sprung? It does feel as though it might have done, although we should whisper that because I don't want to jinx us all. And my goodness, has it taken its time. I love doing today's interview. Dan is so interesting. I've been a fan of Noble Rot for years and I loved finding out how it all came about. He's also the man responsible for discovering Coldplay and Lily Allen, to name just a few. So he had a fascinating first career. And to my surprise, we find out that Chris Martin is a big fan of Curly Whirlies, which I definitely didn't know that. And I'm glad they got a mention because I think Curly Whirlies are a top tier chocolate bar and people don't talk about them nearly enough, although I'm not sure what Gwyneth would have to say about them. Anyway, there's also lots of delicious dishes in this one. And I think my overall takeaway from the interview was that Dan is definitely someone who makes things happen. And I think there's lots of things that we could all learn from that. Thank you for all your reviews this week. If you haven't left a review, it is very easy to do. And we might read yours out at the end, which could be fun. All that's left to say is thank you again to our sponsor, Lloyds Bank, for helping us to bring this to you each week. And now it's time for today's episode. I do hope you enjoy. 
My guest today is Dan Keeling. Dan is an award-winning wine writer, magazine editor, and restaurateur. He is the co-founder of Noble Rot, named for the fungus that shrivels and sweetens grapes, which began life as a cult, food, wine, and popular culture magazine. The magazine created a space that's informative as it is witty and serves up wine alongside sides of life and culture. The brand has since expanded to two award-winning restaurants and a wine shop, Shrine to the Vine. Dan has won numerous awards for his writing about wine and food and has written for the Financial Times, The Spectator and Melody Maker. Before Noble Rot, Dan was previously managing director of Island Records. He was the one who found and signed Coldplay, who then went on to sell 5 million copies of their debut album. Dan has said he lives by the John Hegarty quote, do interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. Welcome, Dan. Hello. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So is that true? Am I right that you do like that quote? Because it's one that I also happen to really like. I think John is very good at coming up with interesting quotes. And uh, that was definitely one that we applied when we started the magazine. When I was in the music industry, I wanted to change and work in wine and food, but didn't quite know what to do. So I thought I'd go back to writing. By doing that, it opens doors. And so by doing interesting things, it leads to other things that we didn't know that were going to happen. I never knew that we were going to have free restaurants in central London. There's so many John quotes, actually, and John comes in the restaurant. So we're very pleased that he's a customer as well. Yeah, that's so cool. I think there's a a temptation, which I am definitely guilty of, that you sort of want to sit at home and wonder why you're not living the life that you want to live. Mm. But you need to get out there and push yourself out of your comfort zone and maybe... It still won't end up happening, but at least you'll know. I think it was something I learned in music, actually, is to get out and get on with stuff. And to one thing, small little connections lead to other things. My job was in A&R, I was finding bands, so you'd have to be out every night. And it wouldn't necessarily be the thing that you went to that would happen. It would be like someone would tell you a little tidbit of information at the end of the night, and then you would go somewhere else and something else would happen. And then you would end up finding a great act or working with somebody good, so... What do you think of the idea of being sent to a desert island? You strike me as quite a resourceful kind of person. (laughs) I don't know. It depends where the desert island is, doesn't it? I'm not too sure. I am a summer person. I like warm weather rather than cold weather, but it might get a bit boring and it depends how many restaurants there are and what the (laughs) the wine cellars are like too. I think you'd have to start your own restaurant. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah, of course. Okay, so there is so much that I want to ask you, but let's dive straight into the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. I'd have to say cheese flan. That was my first love. And it was at primary school and it was with white rice, tinned tomatoes. I got my mum to try and remake it at home, but it was never quite the same, poor mum. And I think I've kind of always had this love of cheese flan that still manifests itself at our restaurant in Lamb's Conduit Street because we have Comte Tart on the menu all the time, which is a perennial and we like to leave on because it's such a good match for Jura wines, white burgundies and stuff. But also around that time, I remember eating Marks and Spencer used to do kind of chicken supreme, they'd call it, and it would be chicken in a cream sauce, maybe with kind of mushrooms. And uh, that was another, I guess that dish must have kind of come somehow from the Jura to Marks and Spencer's in the 1980s. But that's, again, that's something else that's similar that's on one of our menus, which is in Greek Street. We have the chicken with morel mushrooms and Van Jones sauce. So I think that food is obviously so integral to all of us that these kind of key moments when you're early, you end up kind of replicating them throughout your life. And so 
those two things are still quite present. And I'd say, you know, chicken and morels and banjo and sauce is got to be one of my favourite dishes and just is a, an amazing match for, for wine as well. Isn't that amazing that something that happened so early on has now stayed with you throughout your whole life and it's now part of your amazing restaurant? Yeah. I think that's incredible. Yeah, I'm sure uh, our therapist will be able to say <laughs> something about that. <laughs> is that something that you think about now with your own children? Like, is food an important part of your life as a family? It is. And uh, my daughter's vegetarian. We're not vegetarian. So there is slightly different menus going on uh, during the week but you know every Sunday we sit down and we will have a roast dinner together during the week obviously there's so much going on that um, we don't get to eat together all the time but I think it's important as a family to sit down and, and to have meal times together and to enjoy food and kind of impart that kind of joy of that that culture with your family. Definitely. You've said that your mum was a good cook but she was very busy working during your childhood so you cooked for yourself quite a bit which brings us on to the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. So when I was working at Island Records, I met my wife, Naomi. We went on a cookery course at Leafs Cookery School, which at the time was, I think it was Kensington or Knightsbridge. It, it's moved to Shepherd's Bush now. But that was really important because I couldn't cook before then. I had an expense account. I would eat out all the time, taking out bands, managers and, and stuff, and wasn't in very much. So we went to Leaves Cookery School. And funnily enough, when we were waiting in the reception, a, a friend of mine came in with his then-to-be wife by complete coincidence, and he was a, a music uh, agent. And we did this course together, and we learned so much. But it also gave us the confidence to then go on and, and learn more about cooking. So I think learning how to dice an onion is like one of the basic life skills that you should know at school. But I think they might teach people now, but... Back in the day, you would never be taught that. You know, working out how the heat that you put a pan on to cook an omelette, you just don't know because it, you just don't. Yeah. And when you're a student, you have like really bad cookers as well. So I can't remember what we cooked on that course, funnily enough, but I'm, I'm pretty sure mackerel um, pate was part of it. But the dish that I most remember being most pleased about when I cooked it was out of the book Silver Spoon, the Italian cookbook. Oh, yeah. And it was spaghetti with pancetta and tomatoes and a bit of chili. And I remember cooking it and thinking to myself, I might actually pay money to eat that. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's that's a pivotal moment and that gives you more confidence to then cook. And I owe a lot to my wife to actually say my cooking was all right. And then I kind of went onwards with the confidence to become a, a better cook. Learning to cook is an incredible thing. I think everyone remembers that moment, as you've described, where you cook the first thing that you're really, truly proud of. And yeah. it, it feels kind of magical that you've turned these random ingredients into something so delicious. Yes, you're very proud of yourself. So you've said that your mum was a good cook, but I've heard you tell a story previously that made me laugh. You said that you gave her Delia's how to cook when you went away to college and it didn't go down very well. Yes, that wasn't a very <laughs> tactful thing to do. I think that was probably just smoking too much. Um, but uh, she wasn't very pleased. But when you're a student and you're a bit stupid, then you do stupid things. I mean, it's a Delia classic, to be fair. I'd, I'd be yeah, happy to I mean, get a copy. It's great, but I mean, it's the most simple stuff. It's how to boil an egg. <laughs> so after university, you ended up working in the music industry. Had that always been the plan or what did you think you were going to be growing up? I wanted to be a cartoonist, first of all. Oh, did you? And I wanted to be a priest as well. 
But then um, my dad wasn't a Catholic, so the priest told me that he might not go to heaven. So I kind of gave up at that point. (laughs) (laughs) But a cartoonist was probably the first thing. I was really into stuff like Viz magazine growing up and comics. and, And I think that manifests itself a bit now in the magazine with a lot of our illustrations and how kind of cartoony they are. We've got people like Martin Rosen who do amazing political cartoons for The Guardian, and he's a regular contributor now. So, But yes, a cartoonist, first of all, then I started writing about music because I love music. And when I was at Manchester Metropolitan University, it was the Polytechnic at the time. And Melody Maker was the kind of sister publication to Enemy. So I used to write about electronic music for them. And then I discovered on a trip to London uh, a, a record company and I discovered the job which was at A&R. And um, I went to see an A&R guy who'd signed a drum and bass DJ called Fotec. And his office was full of records and outside it had lots of nice cars in the parking lot. And I said, well, what do you do? He says, I sign acts, I'm drum and bass DJs. And I said, what, you get this office and a car? I said, yeah. So I thought, I'll write off to some of these record companies and try and get a job doing that. But beyond that, there was obviously a big romance with record companies as well. And there was books like The Mansion on the Hill or um, The Hitmen, which talk about these legendary A&R men like Amit Ertegen, who ran um, Atlantic Records. And... I just kind of fell in love with the romance of of record companies and and music and records and the ritual of that and quite like wine in a lot of ways, you know, it's the the romance, the ritual. So you seem to be very good at it. You famously discovered Coldplay and I'm thinking, I mean, some people must go through their entire careers in the industry without achieving anything remotely close to that level. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that must have been... An incredible time. Yeah. So I think the first time I saw them wasn't too far from where we're sitting now on Regent Street. It was called Cairo Jacks and it was, I think it was on Brewer Street, so just around the corner here. And it was an Egyptian theme bar. And I went to see them. I'd seen probably four bands that night and they were on last. It was about 11 o'clock. It was a Tuesday night. I was quite tired. Didn't really want to be there. Chris Martin was in like his student jumper that was down to his knees, like Guy the bassist had like stonewashed denim. They looked pretty bad. And <laughs> and they had curly whirlies and they were handing them out to their friends. There's probably about 20, 25 people the at this gig. Bar. Yeah, handing out curly whirlies down the front. And I remember thinking to myself, Mick Jagger would never do that. <laughs> and then I kind of kind of got out of the venue without talking to the manager or anything. And then I heard one of their demos a few months later and it was considerably better than the one that went before. I just kept playing it and playing it and playing it. And then I then I realised I had to do some backtracking and fast. So I called the manager and I said, I really want to meet up with you guys as soon as possible. Where are you now? And he said, uh, I'm on Hoxton Street at a bar called the Electric Showroom. And I used to live on Hoxton Street at that time. So I said, well, just hold on there. And I came down and um, we had a few drinks and then it was kind of into this process of trying to sign them to Parlophone. I mean, to be fair, I had an unfair advantage because Parlophone was really the Rolls Royce of English record companies at the time. It was the Beatles label. There was the Beach Boys on it from Capital in America, which is the sister label. There was Radiohead had put out OK Computer a couple of years before that. Blur was on the label. Kylie had just been signed. It was the label that everyone wanted to be on and it really resonated with them. So we signed them and, yeah, it went as well as it could do. I mean, I think it was 5 million for the debut album and then 10 million for the next one. 
obviously you, you were excited about them because otherwise you wouldn't have signed them. But was that something that you were kind of anticipating or did those numbers blow you away? Yeah, I always anticipated success with them, but I never anticipated what happened and where they ended up. I think at the time, alternative rock bands, whatever you want to call them, apart from Radiohead, they weren't smashing the charts apart. It was, you'd have other bands and if you did 100,000 records, you would be lucky. So I thought we'd get to 100,000 with parachutes, but yeah. it went gangbusters and, you know, crazy around the world pretty quick. And did you ever get to the bottom of the curly whirlies? <laughs> in, in what way? <laughs> like, why were they handing them out? I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, there's a little bit of that still that's kind of come to the fore with Coldplay now. The kind of, I don't know how you describe it, the... um it's the, the, the unexpected. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't really kind of talk about the curly whirlies <laughs> after that. <laughs> Just never mention them again. Yeah. But I'm wondering, looking back, how do you reflect on that time? Like, are you someone that's always looking forwards and you're looking to the next challenge? Or are you able to look back at what you've achieved and feel really proud of it? Oh, I feel proud of it, but it's always about the next challenge and it's always about what you're working on at the time. And, you know, you don't want to get to the end of a project. You want to, I want to be in the middle of projects and I want them to be fun and, you know, a, a process that makes me feel like I'm expressing something. Each mag, uh, issue of the magazine, each article I write or commission, it's all uh, a process and the process is an enjoyable part. But I'm more about looking forward than I am looking back. Yeah, it's cheesy, isn't it? But it's what everyone says about enjoying the journey. Like there's no point getting to the end if you haven't enjoyed the journey. So no, no. you've got to have fun doing the day to day. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. That is the best dish you've ever eaten. Yeah, I mean, this was a hard one because each week you fall in love with another dish. And But there's a candidate that was only two weeks ago and uh, I was in Saint-Emilion in France I was visiting uh, Chateau Cheval Blanc, one of the, the top chateaux there. And the wines are personal favourites. They're very opulent. They're, they're quite luxurious. They have this amazing texture, Cheval Blanc. And um, they treated us to lunch. And the chef that they had, he absolutely blew me away with, with his cooking. He'd been uh, Michel Gerard's right-hand man at Pré de Eugenie down in southwest France. And it was very much that style. And it was a starter and it had a aubergine base it had smoked mayonnaise kind of on the top of it and it had like slivers of vegetables that had been treated in different ways, some grilled, some fried. And essentially it was a tart, but it was just absolutely perfect. Yeah, I couldn't fault it in any way. I loved it so much. And the kind of thing you eat, a vegetarian dish, then you don't miss meat at all. It had oyster leaf in it as well, oh, which wow. kind of gives it that kind of salinity and kind of took it out of the realm of the ordinary into something that was quite special. I mean, that sounds quite a highfalutin <laughs> dish because I could say poached eggs on toast as well, which is, you know, I cook eggs probably more than anything and I just think they're the, they're the perfect food. But if you were going to ask me now, I'd say that. I could tomorrow say Palamos prawns from Costa Brava. I love prawns. And Echibari, I've had amazing ones, but also there's a restaurant on the coast in the Costa Brava called uh, Villa Mas. And Villa Mas is the most beautiful setting. It's right on the beach. It's got a killer burgundy list. And the food is just out of this world. But it's simple. It's Palermo's prawns, simply grilled with salt, or the best tomato salad you've ever had. But as you know, it's all about the setting as well. Yeah. And for me, it's about wine. 
So from the music industry, you moved into the wine industry. And after having developed this real love of wine while you're working at Island Records, and that was really the beginning of Noble Rot, you started with your business partner while you were still working in music. And I think you didn't end up quitting your day jobs until you opened your first restaurant. Have I got that right? I quit my job or I wasn't in the job before we opened the restaurant. Mark was still working at Robeson Wine. Uh, Robeson Wine is still going, but it no longer has its shop. And the shop was two doors down from where Island Records was. So I used to spend a lot of time in there. I had a bit of disposable income at the time and just got really, really into wine. And Mark was a little bit ahead in his kind of journey into wine. But we were kind of roughly similar levels enough that we could drink together and explore and egg each other on to, why don't we split a bottle of Chateau Reyes, for example, or these other burgundies that we loved. And so you kind of need a drinking partner to get into wine. It's, it doesn't really work that well as a solo pursuit. But saying that, <laughs> I used to have very indulgent meals on my own when my wife used to go out and I'd put our daughter to bed and just open a bottle of wine and... Uh, it sounds so poncy, but put a candle on and open a nice bottle of wine and watch it kind of evolve over a few hours and cook myself something nice. So that's pretty indulgent. That sounds nice. That sounds like a very nice way to spend an evening. You say you started the magazine before you really knew what you were doing, which I love that you said that because what was the plan? It's a big change going from music to wine. Were you trying to create something that you didn't feel existed in the space? Yes, definitely. There was writers that we really liked. You know, Hugh Johnson is a brilliant wine writer and we really liked Jancis Robinson. Kermit Lynch, an American importer, he wrote a book called Adventures on the Wine Route, which is very important for both of us. I mean, Kermit was the closest to what we wanted to do because Kermit wrote about wine with a sense of humour and he put it in context of food. We wanted to combine the wine with our love of music and food and the humour, the cartoons, all of that stuff was important to us. Mm. It goes back to, you know, I, I keep thinking of things like Viz magazine and very British, the old Monty Python, very British things that just, we do have a sense of irony and sarcasm and uh, humour that is particular to Britain. Mm, And I, I think it does translate in America and it translates in France, but there's maybe a little less sarcasm in those countries. Well, even looking at something like The Office, where they did the American version, because the English version wouldn't have worked over there, would it? No, 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 it wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) But it's weird to think that at the time, the writing about wine was in isolation, which is such a strange way to think now, obviously, with what you've done with Noble Rot, but obviously makes so much sense to talk about it in the context of food and also wider social context. I think a lot of um, wine writing is still like that. It's still Mm. scoring out of 100 points. It's still listing flavours with a wine. I mean, sometimes when we write about wine, we do say it does taste like raspberries or it tastes like oyster shell, but only if it really does. And I think there's a danger with wine writing that people, they try and find these things because they think that they have to, Mm. when really what we're trying to do is write about how the wine makes us feel, how it might make the reader feel, rather than what it tastes like Mm. necessarily. And that's so much more inclusive for someone who may not know that much about wine or who are just like beginning their journey. Because I find it very intimidating being told that it tastes like something. And if you can't taste it, you just no, feel I like agree. you need to just nod and say that you can. But yeah. I mean, sometimes it really does. A wine yeah. really does smell like ripe strawberries. There are those times, but often it just smells like wine. 
But also, I think it's worth talking about mentioning natural wine and how that over the last 10 years has really helped a lot of people become less scared about wine. The fact is that people don't need to know anything about a wine if they go and explore natural wine. I think that there's something quite valid about that as much as really getting in deep into the details of classical wine. Mm. But I think that people are less scared now than they were 10 years ago or less intimidated about wine. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I hadn't thought about it like that. On to the most important question of the day, Dan. It's the fourth desert island dish. What is your favourite sandwich? Oh, I'm not a sandwich fan, I've got to say. I'm <gasps> not a sandwich fan. I was a bit disappointed with the question. I just always avoid a sandwich. and okay. I too mean, much bread. Yeah, my wife says to me, I don't understand afternoon tea. I don't understand afternoon tea. Damn. I'm just... We were getting along so well. The, I know, but I just think those calories can be better spent somewhere else. But if I was going to have a sandwich, yeah. it would be tuna mayonnaise sandwich because and I think that's probably as wrong as having tuna on your pizza, but I quite like both those things. But it just reminds me, I think it goes back to scouting for bands and being up and down the country and being faced with soggy sandwiches. So I think it's why I'm... I'm always disappointed when I face a sandwich. Yeah, the bad sandwiches have they've Well, the you. bad sandwiches, the Ginsters pasties, all of that stuff is kind of like lumped together in, in one thing in my brain. So on Christmas, you're one of those rare people who's not very excited about the Boxing Day sandwich. No, I'm really not. Damn, 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 <laughs> Sorry. damn. Sorry. That's okay. We'll forgive Terrible. you. There are no wrong answers on this podcast. So no. whether you love sandwiches or whether you don't, we will forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> it's one thing to love wine, but it's very different to then convert that into your job or your career. Were you ever worried doing that would take away from your enjoyment of wine? Uh, that's an interesting question, but no, I don't think I was ever worried about it, but it is good to be interested in other things than the thing that you're working on, that's for sure. Yeah. So it's interesting when your passion becomes your job. So when my passion became my job with music, there was a bit of conflict in that because major record labels are set up to have hit records. And a lot of the time, those hit records might not be very good bits of music or yeah. they might not have much substance. And I think... As I've got to middle age, you, you look back and you think, oh, it's all just really vacuous pop music now. But of course it's not. There's an amazing stuff that's that's more underground. But yeah, there's a conflict with music and working in it because I, I really only could work with stuff that I liked, whereas some of my friends were able to just, they could be selling baked beans. It was that, that simple. It was just a job for them. With wine, wine industry is a bit different to music. I think there's people that are in it and if I take our staff, for example, they're there for a real passion for, for wine. They want to learn about wine. They're not there to get rich. They're not there for power. Whereas with music, I think that a lot of the, there was a lot of people in it for that. So the one thing you've got to watch your wine is obviously drinking all of your all of your cellar all the time. So I think that's the, the hardest thing with working with wine because it is a passion and because obviously you meet people all the time and people you want to have lunch with them and you want to have dinner but you just you could end up like you know 25 stone and like in AA quite quick. Yeah. yeah that's a good point. You say that there are certain issues of the magazine that you kind of wish didn't exist, but that you have to get through those ones to get to the good ones. Yeah. And that is very relatable, Dan. I feel you on that one. But I wondered if that reflects on who you are in a way, like you're someone who starts and 
you know, look at the success that you've ultimately had. Do you think for a lot of people, the fear of something not being perfect is enough to stop them taking that leap in the first place? Yeah, I mean, that fear of something not being perfect is just stops the creative act. It's the killer. And you have to be prepared for it not to be perfect. I mean, issue three of the magazine, I don't think was a very good issue, but we got through that and issue four was better. Yeah. And of course, if anything creative, there's mistakes that I know happen in issues of the magazine. There's a line that was missing in an article that I wrote in the new one, which I was devastated when you see it, but then you just have to let it go. And you spend all your time trying to make things perfect, but they're never going to be perfect all the time. So you have to accept that. But I think that's one of the hardest things is to to let things go, just to allow things to be not 100 out of 100 all the time or yeah. whatever. And when you're starting something, I mean, done is better than perfect. Otherwise, you would never get going. No, no. You know, perfectionism doesn't get you anywhere, really. Yeah. Maybe a nervous breakdown. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, a, a you know, the stories of chefs, isn't there, that, um, you know, Bernard Loiseau, who, you know, perfectionist chef, who unfortunately committed suicide because it's that striving for perfection, which is just kind of impossible, mm. especially with something like a restaurant where it's just a continual kind of service that's just one after another. Mm drive you mad yeah and you're only ever as good as your last meal or last issue or whatever it is so yeah if you get too hung up on that it's very stressful we're all gonna have to go and check out issue number three now (laughs) now that you've said that you've had some amazing contributors and you're celebrating 10 years of noble rock which is amazing what do you consider your biggest achievements with the magazine so just to get to issue 31, which is 10 years of Noble Rot, that's a big achievement. I mean, I don't know where we thought we'd be when we started the magazine, but going back to the quote of do interesting things and interesting things will happen to you, doing the magazine definitely opened the door to then do the restaurant and then to do the second restaurant and then to start a wine import company and then to do a shop. And there's a nice synergy between all of these things. And mm. obviously there's, there's wine and not just wine, but a, a real ethos about the kind of wine that we like and the kind of wine that we think is important and matters. But from doing the restaurant and the magazine, we met loads of amazing growers in Burgundy and Champagne. And because they liked the magazine, there was an opportunity to then start importing their wines. One thing leads to another. Mm. Now that you're on the other side of it, that makes so much sense. But I wonder when you were putting together that first issue, was that in itself just very exciting? Like even if that was all it was ever going to be? Yeah, we didn't know what it was going to be really. It's just you start and you make it up as you go along. But if you don't start, then we'd have never got to this point. I don't know what I'd have done, but I I didn't want to stay doing A&R. I like cooking, but I didn't want to be a chef. I was too old and it was not conducive to the kind of lifestyle because I just had my, my daughter. So I wasn't sure what I wanted to be or what Noble Rock could be. And I'm not sure Mark did either. Yeah, I just think I'm a firm believer, start before you're ready. I think that's a really good motto. Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. So I do get slightly addicted to certain foods. And there's an amazing cafe restaurant that's just around the corner from Lamb's Conduit Street called Master Way. And it's a, a, a Jean Chinese place. 
and they do this dish called smack cucumbers. And I mean, I've asked them numerous times what the recipe is, but <laughs> I think they've got some top secret Chinese vinegars and sesame paste or Szechuan peppers and stuff. They do one called chopped chicken salad as well. So really it's these, it's obviously it's a cold dish and it's got a, a, this dressing that just kind of pulls your taste buds in so many different directions. It's quite light, so it's quite a nice thing to have at lunch and doesn't slow you down. But I have to stop myself going too many times a week because I'll be in there a lot. <laughs> Just fantastic. And at home, the dish that I cook when it's the kind of winter months, I'll always do um, Cote de Boeuf and I'll do it on the grill, on the um, stovetop. Ooh. And in the uh, Joel uh, Robichon book, uh, Complete Robichon, there's a recipe where you kind of flip this Cote de Boeuf in a pan and some butter and some oil, and you do it for about 40 minutes and it really crisps up the outside of the Cote de Boeuf. But that's kind of like my Sunday ritual, that with the football on the telly and a nice uh, bottle on the go. So I eat that quite a lot. Or at least once a week. That sounds really good. Also love that you keep asking them for the recipe and they won't give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> so going from magazines to restaurants, I mean, obviously, as we've said, it makes a lot of sense and it's a very natural evolution of the business. But tell us about opening that first restaurant. Was that scary, exciting? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely scarier than than publishing your first issue of a magazine. Because of the like the money involved? Or... The money involved because, you know, there's fish that gets cold because you've got no idea how a restaurant works. <laughs> I did a couple of stages actually at the Sportsman, which is Stephen Harris's mm. restaurant, who's our executive chef, just to get an idea about how a, a restaurant kitchen would work. But... How did you find that? Well, it was very nice and I learned to, some great recipes, but I've never been a, a, a proper chef and I've got a lot of respect for anyone who is because it's just hardcore. But it was a massively steep learning curve for both of us. Luckily, we got a really good general manager called Ollie and he'd had experience running a wine bar restaurant before. Mark had run uh, this pub called um, the William IV on Harrow Road, which is like an old music industry pub in West London. So at least he knew how a bar worked. <laughs> but it was just get on with it. And there was stuff that that we had to learn very quickly. You know, old buildings, uh, very kind of particular and we had a, a long service corridor and the food would come up on the first few services and it would get cold and it took a while to work out that we had to insulate that corridor and we had no air conditioning and I remember one one particular service Roman Abramovich's wife came in and obviously she's probably used to like quite a high quality kind of fit out in terms of a restaurant and it was the most sweltering summer day and the whole restaurant was just like a sweat box. Oh, no. So it took us a while even to, to afford to get air conditioning. But it was, it's been a great place to, to build from. And Lamb's Conduit Street, it's my favourite street in London. It's a lovely mix of different businesses. There's a lot of different kind of professions around there as well. It was kind of the perfect place for us to get. But it was exciting, terrifying and fun. You're so clever, as you've said, like the building is so important. I feel like that's something that you guys do so well with the subsequent restaurant as well. Like the building is key. And I guess one of my questions for you was going to be asking you to explain, which is obviously an impossible question, but like the X factor of how you make these restaurants feel like these very long serving institutions when they haven't been there that long. And do you think the building itself plays a big part in that? Yeah, I mean, 
absolutely and they have been there because i mean sometimes people come into our restaurants and they say to us uh, i can't believe that you've only been open x amount of years and this place feels like it's been here forever but they have been there for hundreds of years i mean lambs yeah. conduit street was built in 1701 it's been a doctor surgery it's been an electrical shop it got converted into a wine bar in 73 by one of Admiral Nelson's uh, great, great, great grandchildren. But it's just got so much good living in the walls. And and we love old buildings. And I want to sit somewhere that kind of feels cosy, that's a bit of a cocoon, that has history, that has that kind of, it's a feeling, isn't it? You, you've got to want to spend time there. So we've got our new place, which is opening in Shepherd Market in Mayfair. And that was a restaurant called Le Boudon Blanc. And that was an instant, this is where we want to be. I went for lunch with my wife and she said, oh, this makes me feel like I'm on holiday. And I thought, well, I couldn't think of a better compliment to say about a building or an area than that. It's a kind of fantasy place that you can, you know, you're getting looked after by people who are really into hospitality, but wine and food. And you need to just forget about your daily grind and, mm. and be there. It makes a place to make you feel special. That makes so much sense. Like, I guess it ties back to what you said about what you've done with Noble Rot and, and the wine. It's all about the feeling that it elicits and obviously the space and the restaurant ties yeah. into that as well. And the same with Soho as well, which was the Gay Hussar, where, um, you know, a lot of Labour politicians were big customers and it's just got a really rackety old past there and there's photos we've got of dinner parties upstairs where it's got such an eclectic mix of people, like it's got Ronnie Wood from the Stones and then loads of journalists and just a a real kind of motley crew of people that used to go there. And Soho is just such a brilliant place too. It's kind of the epicentre of London. And Mayfair we love and Lambs Conduit Street, so we just, yeah, it kind of feels a bit surreal that we've got a restaurant in Mayfair. It kind of feels a bit posh. It's amazing. (laughs) Let's talk about the sixth desert island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. So there's a cookbook by Henry Harris called The Fifth Floor Cookbook, and there's a dish in there, which I guess it's his version of beef bourguignon, but it's omelette stewed with mushrooms and shallots and red wine, and you stew it for a very, very long time. And I've dined out on that casserole or whatever you call it that numerous times, I mean, I really love Henry Harris's cooking and Bouchon Racine, which is his new restaurant. We did our Noble Rot staff party in recently. But I, I think that's a good dish. I think when you're entertaining, you want something you've done all the hard work and it's just so easy to, to, to heat up. And I usually make that three days before people come over. Mm-hmm. So it's properly kind of uh, aged like an old burgundy. And then <laughs> I serve that with going back to Joel uh, Robichon, his potatoes, which is pretty much 50% butter and 50% potato, and then some green beans and then multiple bottles of really good wine. So that's my go-to. Sounds so good. Do you ever serve puddings? No. No. <laughs> Strawberries, maybe. <laughs> A pudding wine? Yes, yes. Uh, pudding wines, ikem sometimes but not all the time. But with Shrine to the Vine, the magazine, the restaurants, the book, I mean, do you have time to entertain? Is that something that you're doing? Not so much, no. We try and be in our restaurants as much as we can. But even if you eat in them once a week, that's three meals out. And I really love going to check out other restaurants. And I think that's really important as a restaurateur that Mm. you see what other people are doing. So there's not really much time to entertain at home anymore. Yeah. And you've got your Sunday lunch with the football that 
you need to Sunday protect. lunch is protected, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So I wondered, what is your most treasured cookbook? So Simon Hopkinson, week in, week out. I remember buying that when I'd left Island Records after I'd been on the Leafs course. And there's just so many uh, recipes I've done from that over the years. The quails with peas is a kind of take on the classic French pigeon with peas with some pancetta. And it's just perfect with a great bottle of red wine. So I still do that a lot. There's a, a gnocchi dish in there with garlic cream, which is just amazing. There's a brilliant simple mushroom soup in there. There's a guinea fowl in red wine, which is a bit like his version of Cocker Van, for example. There's these little um, half potatoes that you, you steam and then you put horseradish sauce and then you put smoked eel on the top. Mm. And that's Yum. a really good. So there's so many good recipes in that. And it's beautifully shot as well by Jason Lowe. And all the pictures are just, it's just a classic book. So that would be my favourite. Isn't that amazing that you got that after you did the Leith course and now Simon Hopkinson is one of your main contributors for Noble Rock? Like, yeah, yeah. that must be quite surreal that that has kind of come full circle. Yes, no, it was, I mean, it's a kind of strategy also that you get in touch with your heroes and you ask them to, to write or collaborate. And yeah, I think it's been amazing having Hoppy on board and, you know, all our other contributors, uh, Marina O'Loughlin, who's, you know, I think the best, kind of restaurant food writer in the country. John Niven, who's our agony uncle, who, again, one of my favourite novelists and one of the funniest writers around. Amazing to have him. And we've had Kira Knightley in the, in the new issue. I and she's a brilliant writer. I get an email a day saying how much everyone's enjoyed that article mm, that I she's written. It. So uh, really she's missed out on her true vocation. Yeah, well, she's done all right. But... <laughs> We're on to the final seventh Desert Island dish, and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. I'd have to then go to a very, very good Japanese restaurant because that's kind of my biggest indulgence, I think, or expense is Japanese food. Okay, so where are you going? So there's a place, uh, when I was last in New York, we went to a place called Sushi Ginza or Jinza, and it's opposite the library, which is in Ghostbusters. So that kind okay. of, that holds a special <laughs> place in my heart too. And it's an omakase menu, you sit at the counter and you get past like very, very uh, amazing sushi. So I, I think that would be it. And I've never really tried to make sushi because I know that I would mess it up. So and the, I love the precision and the simplicity of it. And I'm not, I don't think I'd get that on a desert island, so I would, I would go for that. Whereas, you know, you might be able to kill something and roast some meat. So Yeah, that's true. So you're having a full sushi feast. What are you drinking? Probably a Chablis, maybe, or maybe a grower's champagne. And are you having any kind of pudding or anything to send you off? Well, I might as well. Yeah. <laughs> Have anything you like, Dan. Um, a pudding. I mean, I remember... When I was getting into more into food, I remember watching a program which was called uh, the, the Greatest Pudding in the World and people, chefs would nominate what they thought their greatest puddings were. And Michelle Rue was talking about omelette souffle Rothschild. And I remember that made me go to Le Gavroche for the first time. But I don't think I'd have that because that's quite a heavy pudding. <laughs> maybe something like, uh, I really like rum barber maybe. Ooh. Yeah. Good choice. Dan, those were your Desert Island Dishes. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. If you do enjoy the podcast, do think about subscribing wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. 
It's now time to talk about our weekly review of the week and this one is a little bit different but I wanted to talk about it because it really meant a lot to me. I got an email from a 15 year old who said, and I'm not going to read the email out word for word, but they said they used to be really interested in food, cooking and baking and unfortunately lockdown gave them really bad anxiety and caused them to fall out of love with food. The good news is they're now slowly rediscovering their love of cooking and they're looking forward to going to college next year. They said, it's amazing to hear all the brilliant stories of so many fascinating people who've been through so many ups and downs throughout their lives, and yet they've still been so successful. It's also great to hear food talked about in such a positive light, in terms of the joy and the memories that it can bring. I think my favorite episode so far has been Tom Gosney, as someone who spent a lot of time being very unkind to myself. I found it very relatable and very inspiring that he managed to find his calling despite his difficult teenage years. Getting this email meant so much to me, as I'm sure you can imagine. And we've had lots of messages about the Tom Gosney episode, and it's so true. Even the most successful people have ups and downs. It's never linear. And there's so much we can learn from hearing about other people's roads to success. So I just wanted to say thank you very much to the listener who wrote in with this and for sharing that with me. If you don't already, then do come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And you can sign up for the newsletter on the website desertislanddishes.co, where you'll get emails telling you about that week's guest and all sorts of other goodies. And thank you again to Lloyd's Bank, our sponsor for this season of Desert Island Dishes. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week. Bye.